Joshua chapter 10, we're going to read to verse 14. It says, Now it came to pass when Adoni, Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had taken Ai and had utterly destroyed it, as he had done to Jericho and its king. So he had done to Ai and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them that they feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city like one of the royal cities and because it was greater than Ai and all its men were mighty. Therefore Adoni Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hocham, king of Hebron, Piram, king of Jarmuth, Japhia, king of Lachish, and Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, that we may attack Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the children of Israel. Therefore the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, the king of Eglon, gathered together and went up, they and all their armies, and camped before Gibeon, and made war against it. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp at Gilgal, saying, Do not forsake your servants. Come to us quickly. Save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the mountains have gathered together against us. So Joshua ascended, and that's going to be important later, from Gilgal. He and all the people of war with him and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear them, for I have delivered them into your hand. Not a man of them shall stand before you. Joshua therefore came upon them suddenly, having marched all night from Gilgal. So the Lord routed them before Israel, killed them with a great slaughter at Gibeon, chased them along the road that goes to Betoron, and struck them down as far as Azekah and Makedah. And it happened as they fled before Israel and were on the descent of Bet-Oron that the Lord cast down large hailstones from heaven on them as far as Azekah. And they died. There were more who died from the hailstones than the children of Israel killed with the sword. Then Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel, and said in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still over Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ajalon. So the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, till the people had revenge upon their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jasher? So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven, and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. And there has been no day like that, before it or after it, that the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. In chapters 9 and 10, you'll remember, it records the deception of the Gibeonites. In chapter 9, verses 1 through 27. And now it's going to record the destruction of the southern kings in the promised land. First, a confrontation by these five kings. And later, there's going to be a series of, of more battles throughout the chapter. So the chapter begins with the story of a condition of forces or a coalition of forces that joined together to punish Gibeon for making a peace pact with Israel. Now, this should sound familiar. It's as familiar as the headlines today, that when Israel's neighbors try to form peace, there are immediate repercussions. Five kings are mentioned, Adoni, Zedek, the king of Jerusalem, and then four others in verses 1 through 5. The Gibeonites issue a plea for help in verses 6 and 7. A promise is made to Joshua for victory in verse 8. And then a 
provision is made by God himself as he sends a hailstorm upon Israel's enemies and then miraculously extends the day to ensure total victory for the armies of Israel against the enemies of Joshua and Israel. Hence, the day that the sun stood still. Now, scholars and skeptics point to this passage and they love to spend their times debating whether or not this could possibly be true. We as Christians have no problem with a supernatural God acting supernaturally. There will always be people who will say, Jonah was never swallowed by a sea creature. The sun never stood still. These are the same people who would argue that it's not even possible for a Jesus to rise from the dead. But again, our worldview allows for the fact that a supernatural God can act supernaturally. When I was, again, preparing this passage, there are, there's so much information that's been written on it, you wouldn't believe it. I found 12 different explanations for what happened. They're all very, very interesting reading, and I'm going to give you some thoughts about it, but let's not get bogged down just yet. And so, did God allow the earth to either slow its orbit or cease its orbit? What exactly happened? We're going to talk about that. Next is a series of seven battles in chapter 10, verses 15 through, through 39, which again, we'll, we'll look at later as, as we study in the future. And then a summation of the total extent of Joshua's victories in the southern region in verses 40 through 43. Now again, part of what I keep bringing you back to is the great theme of the book. The great theme of the book is victory. Victory over our enemies. And that that victory takes many different forms. And in this chapter, we're going to be talking about victory, and in part, loyalty. So in this chapter, we're given a glimpse of victory and loyalty. In the Bible, I think that there's two kinds of loyalty. There's a healthy kind of loyalty, and there's an unhealthy, misguided kind of loyalty. And so, in a sense, remember what loyalty is. It is duty obligation, support. So loyalty is the strong feelings of support and alliance and the inhabitants of the land, remember what I've already told you. They are not loyal to the God of Israel and to the God of Jacob. And so when we're reading about these several kings and the occupants of the land, these aren't people who love God and honor God and want to obey God. Just like you live in a world that doesn't want to love God, honor God, obey God. There are sometimes things in our life that do not want to love God, know God, and honor God. But remember, I've likened this often to the fact that we as Christians aren't called to occupy a land, but rather a person. We occupy the second Joshua, Jesus and even again, as I was preparing this, I was reminded in my head of what Jesus spoke on the road to Emmaus when he was unfolding the Old Testament scriptures. And you'll remember he said to those people who were walking along the road, he said that these Old Testament writings, that these are those which testify of, of me. And he told the religious leaders, you search the scriptures because in them you think that you find life, but these are those which speak about me. And so we would be doing the scriptures a disservice if we didn't ask and answer the question, what does this have to do with our Jesus and our life? Now remember, the inhabitants of the land are not loyal to the king of Israel. And so in one sense, this chapter constitutes a test for Joshua and the children of Israel. Throughout the chapter, there are glimpses of loyalty. Joshua is loyal because he's going to keep his word. 
He's going to keep his promises. Remember, for those of you who were here last week, they entered into an unhappy and reluctant alliance with the Gibeonites through deception. But having made the agreement in the name of the Lord, they're going to honor the agreement. Joshua is loyal to his word. Joshua is loyal in prayer in verse 8, in verse 12. Actually, from verses 8 through 15, he is loyal in pursuing the enemy. He is loyal until they experience complete victory over the enemies of God in this first part of the chapter and in the last part of the chapter. It reminded me of what Dwight David Eisenhower, the, the commander then of the Allied forces in World War II, told his men before D-Day. He said to them, you are about to embark on the great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hopes and prayers of liberty Loving people everywhere will march with you in company with our brave allies and brothers in arms on other fronts. You will bring about the destruction of the German war machine, the elimination of Nazi tyranny over the oppressed peoples of Europe and the security for ourselves in a free world. Your task, he said, will not be an easy one. Your enemy is well-trained, well-equipped, and battle-hardened. He will fight savagely. I have full confidence in your courage and devotion to duty and in battle. Then he said these most important things. We will accept nothing less than full victory. This is in part what Joshua is doing. He's trying to impress upon the people that anything less than full victory over the enemies of God is unacceptable. And maybe there comes a time in your life, in your Christian walk, in your willingness as you pray and read your Bible and enter into relationships, that you begin to understand that anything less than victorious Christian living is not what God has called you to. When, when Eisenhower finished his speech, he said, Good luck, and let us beseech the blessings of Almighty God upon this great and noble undertaking. Joshua is loyal in waging constant warfare against the enemy, uncompromisingly faithful. And so this loyalty is going to result in a large portion of the promised land being given over to the children of Israel. Remember, they're called to occupy the land. And as they've been occupying the land, they march around Jericho. They attack Ai. But now something amazing is going to happen. Because there's going to be a coalition of forces that unite together in order to try and destroy Gibeon and unite in order to deal with Israel. God is going to use this to Israel's advantage. Because all five enemies are going to be in one particular place at one particular time ripe for the picking. And that's exactly what's going to happen. So it begins with Gibeon's cry for help. Look at verse 1. It says, Now it came to pass when Adoni Zedek, that's a Hebrew compound word. It's the title of the king of Jerusalem. Adoni means king and Zedek means justice. So the name of the king living in Jerusalem is the king of justice. So we might even read, It came to pass when the king of justice... Adoni Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had taken Ai and had utterly destroyed it, as he had done to Jericho and its king, and as he had done to Ai and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them. Now, the king of Jerusalem knows that his position is in jeopardy, his title is in possession, in, in jeopardy, his authority possessions, power, 
everything is in jeopardy. And we also need to note something that is going to be very, very important. And that is that this is the first mention of Jerusalem. Now there's mentions of Jebus and there's mentions of Salem. But this is the first mention in the Bible of Jerusalem, the city. Now, the the city is obviously old, and it's going to play a central role in God's plans and purposes for the coming of Messiah. I think it's also safe to say that the city of Jerusalem is the most important city in the world. My friends at, uh, at, at Rose Publishing, they have a little pamphlet called A Jerusalem Timeline. And I love their pamphlets, but the opening paragraph in their, in, their, in their pamphlet is so good. It says, Jerusalem is one of the most important cities on earth. Scripture calls it the city of our God, Psalm 48. Jerusalem has been and still is a focal point for Jews, Muslims, Christians. The name Jerusalem means the city of peace. Yet throughout history, it's been one of the most fought over cities of all time. And this becomes part of the point. Because in our story, in the book of Joshua, even though the coming of Jesus is still 1,300 years away, this city is the city of the great king. This Sunday I'm going to be teaching from Matthew chapter 10, where Jesus is going to take his disciples aside and he's going to explain to them, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be arrested, and I'm going to be abused, and I'm going to be humiliated, and then I'm going to come back to life. Out of all of the places on the planet Earth that God had set aside for Jesus to do what Jesus was going to do, it's going to be in this city. And so now we get the first glimpse of a former king. But he's not the rightful king. He doesn't belong in this city. The people of God belong in this city. And so again, Israel's future is going to be there. This is the city that David will secure as his capital. This is the city where Solomon Solomon will build his temple. This is the city where Jesus will speak and teach and die and come back to life. This is the city that the Bible says in the future will be called the new Jerusalem. This is the city where where Jesus himself will establish his throne in the millennial kingdom. In antiquity, the first non-biblical sources that made reference to this city was in a group of archaeological finds called the Tel Amarna letters in 1400 B.C., where it records the name of the city as Yerusalem. The city of peace. It's called Yira, or you probably heard the expression Jehovah Jireh. But Hira or Jireh is mentioned in Genesis 22:14. Salam or Salem, Genesis 4:18. You combine the two letters together in the Hebrew language, Jeru Salaim. Some Hebrew people believe that the meaning of the name isn't just the city of peace, but rather it's the, the name of the city becomes a type and a picture of, for the Jewish people of the city where God will reveal himself. All of this to say that the name Jerusalem, this name, that word, is going to be one of the very few words that are mentioned in the Bible that's going to evoke a deep, visceral, emotional response from Jesus. You'll remember, again, when he gets ready to die, he stumbles on his way to Calvary. And remember, he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I would have gathered you like a hen gathers her chicks, but you wouldn't receive me. And so this is the place of deep emotion, deep sorrow, but also deep joy. When Jesus was warned about Herod's threat against him, Jesus said, 
It cannot be except that a prophet perish in Jerusalem. And there's no city. There is no city. Not a single city on the entire planet earth that contains more prophecies concerning it than this city. So, this king hears about Joshua. The king of this city hears of the incredible unending successes of Joshua about how Ai is destroyed and Jericho is destroyed and then Gibeon's surrender. It says in verse 2 that they feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city like one of the royal cities and because it was greater than Ai and all its men were mighty. In other words, if Joshua and the commanding, the commander of the armies of Joshua put that kind of fear and that kind of trembling into the people of Gibeon, they're wondering who can stand against them. And that's the right response, by the way. People should be terrified over the fact that there's a real God. Now, remember, we live in a time when this God and our Savior is extending mercy and grace and peace and the gospel to people. But the Bible makes it abundantly clear that our Joshua will come as a conquering king. So Gibeon was a large city with considerable resources and brave men. And so they begin to mention the series of cities that are surrounding Jerusalem. Therefore, Adoni Zedek, the king of Jerusalem, sent to Hocham, the king of Ebron, Piram, the king of Jarmuth, Japhia, the king of Lachish, and Debir, the king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me that we may attack Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the children of Israel. All of the cities that are mentioned here are all cities that are south of Jerusalem, and they're close by Jerusalem. And so he's inviting them to unite together, to stand against a common enemy. In verse 5, therefore the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Ebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon gathered together and went up with all of their armies and camped before, before Gibeon and made war with it. Now you've got to understand something. Out of these kings, one of the kings is the king of Hebron. Do you know what's in Hebron? This is the place where Abraham buries his beloved wife, Sarah. This is the place where he himself will be buried. This is the place where Isaac will be buried. This is the place where Jacob will be buried. This is the place where when the children of Israel come up out of Egypt, they leave the remains of the beloved Joseph and Hebron. And so even though it's a great city and a wonderful city and an important city in their life, the vast majority of the people stand in opposition to Joshua. And so it says the king of Jerusalem sends this urgent message to four other kings in the surrounding regions. Gibeon has made peace with Joshua. The capitulation and surrender is going to spell disaster for them. They need to take immediate action, he's saying. And it says... And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp of Gilgal, saying, Do not forsake your servants. Come to us quickly. Save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the mountains have gathered together against us. Now, this is what's important. You should notice the important word fear. The king of Jerusalem fears the Gibeonites, Joshua, and the children of Israel. The Gibeonites are afraid of the combined armies that will present a legitimate threat against them. Gibeon's afraid of the coalition forces because the truth is the odds aren't in favor of Gibeon. And so one of the things that you should take note of right at this very moment is how important it is for you to be on the right side of the battle. You know, it was during world, it was during the Civil War where Abraham Lincoln was constantly 
chided by both the North and the South, begging Lincoln to say, you know, is God with us? Is God on the side of the North or is God on the side of the South? And, and Abraham Lincoln wisely said, the issue isn't whether or not God is with the North or with God is with the South. What we have to be concerned about is if we are on God's side. Not if he's on our side, but if we're on his side. And that important question is a question that you have to answer every single day as it relates to the world in which you live, the Jesus that you serve. We don't always know what is the right side. Sometimes we have to make political decisions and social decisions and economic decisions and we make these decisions and we wonder, wonder, wonder whether or not we're on the right side of the issue. What does the Bible say where I should stand? And you're always, always, always going to be safe if you stand in the place where God is standing. And so, it says in verse 7, So Joshua sends from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. Now, you've got to understand something. Remember the peace pact with Gibeon. Remember, did it include a mutual defense pact? Remember they said that they were going to make peace. And you'll remember that Joshua and the leader said, we made a vow to God um, that we weren't going to take their lives and we can't, we can't break our covenant that we made in the name of God. But this would have been a perfect time for them to say, but if these guys destroy these people, what's that to us? We're still keeping our promise. We promised we wouldn't hurt them, but we didn't promise, we didn't make any promises on anybody else's behalf. So why does Joshua decide to help a group of people who form a relationship with him on the basis of deception and lies? We've already learned the answer to that question for those of us who were here with chapter 9. And that is... God is a God who keeps his word. And because God is a God who keeps his word, he wants men and women who follow him to keep their word. So, again, why not just allow the forces of evil to destroy Gibeon? In a word, loyalty. A deep commitment to keep your promise Keep your word, and it would appear that God's going to honor that because in verse 8 it says, And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have delivered them into your hand. Not a man of them shall stand before you. In other words, Joshua understands what I intimated earlier to you, that these combined forces, as they strike against Gibeon, is going to provide Joshua with an unprecedented opportunity to defeat a large portion of the enemy who stand in opposition to God. And so the Lord, the Lord is going to give a fresh word at exactly the right time and the right moment. And the reason why that fresh word at exactly the right time and the right moment becomes such an important thing is it is again, it, it reminds us that Joshua is seeking the, the Lord's face, the Lord's guidance, the Lord's will, the Lord's assurance. And so the Lord assures him this guidance and assurance will give Joshua the renewed courage and energy for the task at hand. It's also going to result in one of the most unusual days of battle in the history of humanity. And so we see that strange combination of forces. God's word, God's promise, God's people. And then the leadership, Joshua, depending on the Lord.
God promises that Joshua is going to do great and mighty things, and yet Joshua still has the responsibility in obedience to do great and mighty things. And so when the Lord Jesus says, come to me, I'll be with you. I'll walk with you. I'll strengthen you. I will lead you. I will guide you. I will be with you as you walk in the direction of humility and dependence and assurance. But walk you must. And so there's that interesting combination of God's promise and a person's willingness to act in obedience to the promise. It says in verse 9, Joshua therefore came upon them suddenly, having marched all night from Gilgal. So the Lord routed them before Israel, killed them with a great slaughter at Gibeon, chased them along the road that goes to Bet-Horon, and struck them down as far as Azekah and Makedah. And in verse 11 it says, And it happened as they fled before Israel, and we're on the descent of Beth Oran, that the Lord cast down large hailstones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were also those who died from the hailstones uh, more than the children of Israel killed them with the sword. And so in, in that short little sense, we, we see several important things. One of the important things is when it says, Joshua therefore came upon them suddenly, having marched all night. He is in Gilgal. In order to get to the place where he is and then surprise them at Gibeon, he has to do a forced march throughout the night, about 30 miles uphill. In other words, this isn't an army marching down into a valley. But this is an army that's marching up and they are hurt and they are tired and they have, they have expended energy like nobody's business. But it's just going to so happen that God in his grace and his mercy is going to bring about a storm. And by the way, the, that word large hailstones is very interesting in the original language. In Hebrew, it's avini barad. It means stones from heaven. Um, scholars wonder, are these stones mixed with ice like hailstones? Are these, is this meteoritic material? Um, because the ancients were aware that rocks fell from the sky, but there was no evidence that there were rocks in the sky. And so they had to ask and answer the question, where do these rocks come from? But the reality is also it seems that there's a celestial event that's about to take place. And again, part of the miracle isn't just that the hailstones hit the enemies of Israel, but they hit at a specific time and a specific place. And then we see Joshua's prayer in verse 12. Then Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day. When the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel, and he said in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still over Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ajilon. So what is Joshua praying? It's noon. The sun is hot, and it's overhead. Some scholars believe that it's July. And in order to fulfill God's plans and God's purposes and defeat God's enemies, Joshua is in effect saying, I want to do exactly what you've asked me to do. I want to have victory in exactly the place that you've asked me to have victory in. But in order to do it, in order to accomplish what you've asked me to do, I need more time. I need more time. And it's interesting that God's going to answer that prayer. And so in verse 13, look what it says. So the sun stood still and the moon stopped till the people had revenge upon their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jasher? So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. So what happened? According to the text, the sun stood still and the moon stopped. 
And again, normal people should say, how is that even possible? Remember, we live right now in a world, it's sorry, I'm even sad to have to say this, not everybody, not everybody believes that the earth is round. There are people who don't believe that even for a minute. I believe that the earth is round. I believe that the earth rotates on its axis 24 hours in a day and that it revolves around the sun. We know that if the earth literally stops rotating on its axis, gravity is severely disrupted and everything on the surface of the planet is going to leave the planet. So what's happening here? How, what is happening? Did the Lord somehow allow the earth's rotation to cease for a period of some 12 hours or 24 hours? Scientists say that if that happened, the results would have been cosmic, catastrophic, well beyond what the text describes. Literally in verse 13 it reads at the end, the sun did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. The Hebrew word is dom, stand still. It is a word that can also mean silent. It can mean hide or refuse to speak or silent. The idea being that you see the sun and it's speaking, but if it's covered with clouds, it ceases to speak. But we have to believe that something more than just cloud cover, because that's not stupendous and momentous and miraculous. We would be doing violence to the text if we somehow came up with some naturalistic explanation. And then we do away with what the writer himself is saying is happening. As a matter of fact, when it says, till the people had revenge, is this not written in the book of Jasher? What is that? This is a... a an ancient book of some sort, which is lost in antiquity, but it would appear that someone recorded this event, and there seems to be evidence that there are recordings that have taken place all over the world. There are alleged reports that I read about in Egypt of a long day, in China of a long day, of, of Hindi sources of a long day, but all of those things are hard to substantiate. So what is it that we really do know? We know that Joshua pursues the Amorites after a long overnight forced march from Gilgal, which is near Jericho. They march the 30 miles over the rough terrain uphill. The enemy is fleeing westward to Beth Horon. Then they turn south into the valley of Ajilon. By the way, Ajilon in the Hebrew means the deer field. It's the place where the migration of the deers are taking place. So it's a, it was a known hunting ground, if you will. And so the men, after marching all night uphill, are exhausted. And so some scholars suggest that, that again, it's taking place in the month of July. God sends a hailstorm, a violent hailstorm, that, that the storm itself follows the fleeing Amorites. I've seen this one time in my life where you're trying to escape a storm and you're actually going with the storm. In 2005, during Hurricane Katrina, when my, my father was in New Orleans, he, he didn't believe that the storm was as bad as it was and that it wasn't as deadly as it was. And he neglected and refused to listen to the repeated warnings that were given. And finally, towards the end of the day, when it was evident that that things were way worse than even he could imagine. He decides that he's going to leave the house and he's going to flee to my uncle's and my grandmother's house in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and he's going to make his way through Mississippi. But it just so happens that when Hurricane Katrina leaves New Orleans, it begins to follow my dad on the route that he begins to take trying to get away from the storm. You know, it's one thing to be in a storm and it's another thing to try and run from the storm. And it's another thing when the storm follows you. As if it knows where you're going. And whatever is happening, this storm knows about the enemies of God. Now I want you to think about what's happening. The, 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 the text itself says that more people died from the flying stones than the Jewish spears or arrows or slings 
But God, and here's part of the point, God hears Joshua's prayers. As God hears the prayers of Joshua, he answers his prayers with a miracle. Now, some point out that the hailstorm is a miracle, and it is. But again, what do we do with this sun stopping in midday? What happened? I'm going to suggest to you that a lot of explanations have been given. Did Joshua simply pray early in the morning while the moon was in the western sky and the sun is in the east that God would intervene on their behalf? Um, that he sends a hailstorm, not just any hailstorm, but a violent one that blots out the sun, which has the effect of prolonging the darkness and shielding the men from the burning rays. That is an explanation that has been offered, but it doesn't satisfy what's being said in the text about a miracle day. A miracle day because hailstorms and storms have happened. The sun has been blotted out. Even ancient Jewish people know the difference between, even in the ancient world, when the clouds covered the sun, did they think that the sun went away? No. Because in verse 14 it says, and there has been no day like that, before it or after it, that the Lord heeded the voice of a man. For the Lord fought for Israel. Whatever happened... We see three things for sure. Gibeon needed help. Joshua, in loyalty and faithfulness to God, obeys God. There is then a supernatural intervention. So is this refraction of light? Did the earth somehow shift its axis? Did it suspend on its axis? I'm not exactly sure, but I do know. I do know that whatever is happening in the text, the text seems to indicate that it's something way more, way more impressive. And like I said, research papers have been written that offer literally a dozen different explanations of what might have happened. The explanation that seems to make the most sense to me after literally reading a dozen or more explanations is that God, in answer to Joshua's prayer, somehow causes the rotation of the planet to slow in its access so that when the earth is normally rotating on its axis in a 24-hour period, that some sort of celestial phenomenon in Israel's favor and in judgment towards the enemies of Israel causes the earth to literally slow down. The evidence for slowing down, I'm going to suggest to you, is found in verse 13. Look what it says. And so... The sun stopped in the middle of the day and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. Now that word whole day, remember in the Hebrew way of thinking, a day can be from sundown to sunup. Is this a 12-hour period or a 24-hour period? Now some scientists have actually argued that solar storms may have the power to exert some kind of force on the rotation of a planet. This says, quote, the length of day on any planet is governed by the time that it takes to complete one full rotation. The faster it rotates, the shorter the day. So the earth must have slowed down fractionally, unquote. Donald K. Campbell points out that the sun and the moon were both principal pagan deities worshipped by the pagans. And so clearly Joshua isn't speaking to the sun and the moon as pagan deities and saying, hey, I'm going to tell you what to do. I don't think that that's what's happening. I think what's happening... Remember, the, these Amorites, 
The Jebusites, the people who surround them, they worship the sun. They worship the moon. But the moment that Joshua appeals to his God and says, make the sun stop, make the moon stop, they are powerless against the true and living God. And I think that that's part of the answer. When Joshua prays to the Lord, the pagan powers are compelled to comply. The secret to Joshua's success in Israel's victory is in part a willingness to seek God's grace and his mercy and his guidance and his assurance. The secret to their success in part is loyalty to the promises that they've made. But it isn't completely loyalty, but it is rather loyalty and prayer that is revealed in the words, the Lord fought for Israel. Is Israel fighting for themselves? Yes. Is God fighting for Israel? Yes. Part of the point that we get from that particular passage is, is the Lord on your side? And the way that I would answer that question is, if you're on the Lord's side, if you've identified with Jesus, if you've identified with his love, if you've identified with his grace and his mercy, if you've identified with his word, and then what he asks us to do, does Jehovah fight for Israel? The answer is yes. Does Joshua fight for Jehovah? The answer is yes. So both Joshua and Jehovah have a role to play. The people were expected to fight but God is going to give the victory. And so there is this expectation on our part that God's going to fight. But we're going to have to enter into the battle. And that's why in Ephesians chapter 6 it says we battle not against flesh and blood. We battle against principalities and powers and supernatural forces and dark places. And so the invisible forces that we fight have to be fought on our knees in prayer under the guidance and submission to the Holy Spirit and then the empowering of the Holy Spirit. Certainly there are occasions when we can do nothing, that the only choice that we have is to ask God to act. But usually... Not always, but usually there's a part for us to play with dependence on God to do his part. You know, I came across this amazing story. It's from The Miracle of the Fog. It was published a long time ago. It says, just before VE Day of World War II, a soldier named Joel wrote his mother in New Jersey about a miraculous deliverance of his pl platoon. This is the letter that he wrote to his mother. Our outfit has been taken off the army secret list. So now we'll hear a little bit about our activities. We are a part of the Third Army under General Patton. My platoon was pinned down by German mortar and artillery fire. They were given the order to move but couldn't because the Germans had full view of them from a hill and they were zeroing their fire on them perfectly. Tom is the most conscientious Christian boy I have ever met in the service. He knew that something had to be done to save the 50 men. He crawled from his foxhole and he looked things over, seeing how things were. He lay down behind a tree and then he earnestly prayed to God to help them out of this situation. This is true, mother. After he prayed, a fog or mist rolled between the two ships and and the whole 
and the whole platoon got out of their foxholes, or between the two hips, and the whole platoon got out of their foxholes and escaped. They reorganized in a little town behind the lines where there was a church building. They all went in and knelt down to pray and thank the Lord. Then they asked the kid to take the service. That is true, Ma. And it just shows how much prayer can mean. If that wasn't an answer to prayer, I don't know what is. You can bet, oh, you can bet Tom is respected by his buddies. Love you. He's writing to his mother. He's saying, we're in a hopeless situation. The only way that we're going to get out of our hopeless situation is someone is going to have to believe God. And this person does. And he prays, not just as if his life depends upon it, but he prays as if everyone's life, who's a part of his life, depends upon it. And so now we get a peek into the point that's being made. Victorious Christian living, it always include, includes prayer. It always includes loyalty to the promises that God has made for you and then the promises that you've made to him. Next time, we'll finish the chapter in chapter 14. Now we're going to have communion. So I'm just going to have you, uh, I guess all of you have the elements that you have in front of you. And I'm going to have Carolyn come up. We're going to um, sing a final song. But before we do that, let's just pray over these elements and, and pray again for our in our communion service. If you don't have the elements, by all means, you can go get them right now. And while Carolyn's setting up, we're going to uh, just take a moment. Yeah, got some. You got some? Yeah. No, I'm good. I am, as my Spanish-speaking friends say, muy bueno.